are just tuning in, we are going to breaking news. Again, this is a development story. There has been an explosion. Official searching for answers as to who, what, or why. We're also getting unconfirmed reports of the explosion. This is a diversion. Why, God? Why, God? How long must we cry to you for help? How long will you be silent? You came as the Prince of Peace, so why is peace so fragile? If you came to establish your kingdom in righteousness, why is it so hard to find? I thought you were a God who hates evil and cannot tolerate injustice. Why do you not take action? The Lord is sovereign. He is my strength, and I will rejoice in Him. Good morning. Thank you for coming. We're beginning the study of the book of Habakkuk. My um, guess is not many of you have gone through a verse-by-verse study of the book of Habakkuk. That's what we'll do over the next six weeks. It's a powerful book that's very relevant. If you don't have a Bible, please go get one of the information booth that's in the uh, translation that I use called the ESV. It's a free gift to you. The only thing we ask is that you bring it each week, please, as we study God's Word together. If you'd like one of my big honker-type Bibles... Uh, which is basically a seminary course. Uh, it's normally $60. We're uh, allowing you to buy it for $40 because we want you to have God's Word. It'll give you insights into God's Word that you can't imagine. Please, if you want to, go buy it. We'd love to sell that to you. It's in the bookstore here on the South Park campus. Uh, the book of Habakkuk, powerful book, relevant for today. Before I have you read with me the verses, Habakkuk 1, verses 1 through 5, what we'll study today, let me give you the context, the historical context, because if you don't understand that, you really can't understand what's going on with Habakkuk. In the history of Israel, King David oversaw Israel in leadership at the pinnacle of all of its power and success. When he died, the throne was passed on to his son Solomon. During his years in the 900s BC, Israel reached its zenith of prosperity. When Solomon died, there was a vying for his throne, and the nation split. There was the northern kingdom with ten tribes led by Jeroboam. There were two tribes in the south called Benjamin and Judah that were basically overseen by Rehoboam. Those tribes never reunited again. The northern kingdom existed from the early 900s till 722 B.C. when the power of the day, the Assyrians, swept into the northern kingdom and took those ten tribes and dispersed them all over the world. Why did the northern kingdom fall so quickly? The reason's because they didn't have one good godly king, not one. In the succession of Jeroboam to his successor, the next one, there was not one good king. Moral depravity overtook the kingdom, and the nation fell into a moral abyss. The southern kingdom was different, often called Judah. Judah at times prospered when it had a good king. It didn't prosper when it had a bad king. And of all of its kings, it was about 50-50. When good kings came, the nation prospered. When bad kings came, the nation didn't prosper. 
Two of the most wicked kings in the mid-600s B.C. were two kings by the name of Manasseh and his son Amnon. They were evil beyond words. They adopted the idolatrous, godless ways of the nations around them. They practiced child sacrifice. They worshipped in incredibly ungodly ways. And you saw the nation slowly but surely slip down the moral slope of relativism. Amnon died, and the son who came to the throne was named Josiah. He came to the throne at the age of eight. Now, some of you have eight-year-old kids. Can you imagine your eight-year-old kid ruling a nation? I can't. But the good news is that Josiah had a high priest by his side by the name of Hilkiah. He taught Josiah the right ways of the Lord. When Josiah was 16, he was in the bowels of the temple, just exploring it along with Hilkiah, and they find a book. It's the book of the law, hidden, not read for decades. It's basically, most scholars agree, to be the book of Deuteronomy, Moses' last words on how to obey the moral law of God. When Hilkiah and Josiah read this book of the law, they weep like babies because they realize how far the nation of Israel was from God's moral intent. Then Josiah calls all the nation together, and he reads the book of Deuteronomy to them. And everybody weeps because they realize how far the whole nation had fallen from the heart of God. There's a revival, if you will, that breaks out. Spiritual reform begins to occur for some years. Then Josiah gets a letter from Pharaoh Necho II, the Pharaoh of Egypt, the secondary power of that day. Still, the Assyrians were the greatest power of that day, saying... He wanted an easement, if you will, a safe passage through Judah to go and attack the Assyrians, to do warfare with them. Josiah, the king, now an adult, says, no way, you can't come through our land. Necho II declares war on Josiah. They meet in the plain of Megiddo. For those of you who know your Bible, that's the place where the final conflict in the book of Revelation and the battle of Armageddon will occur. They meet there, and Josiah does a brave heart move, like Mel Gibson. He puts on the attire of one of his nominal soldiers to lead them into battle, basically saying, I'm one of you. And great leaders know that the best way to lead is to say, I'm not on my cliff watching you fight the war. I'm in the war with you. So he goes into war against Pharaoh Necho II and his armies, and he dies. He dies. The one who succeeds him is Jehoiahaz, his son, and he is godless. And he brings the nation of Israel back to its godless, idolatrous ways that they were practicing with his grandfather and great-grandfather, Amnon and Manasseh. Then Jehoiahaz dies, and he passes the reign on to his brother, Josiah's other son, and he is equally godless. Jehoiahaz and his brother's reign lasted about 11 years. It is during that 11-year time period that Habakkuk has an oracle from God that tells him what he wants to do. It's during that time of godlessness when Habakkuk's crying out to God, what in the world are you doing, that God speaks to Habakkuk and tells him what he's doing. With that as the context, out of reverence for the reading of the Scripture, if you're able, would you please stand? Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we begin our verse-by-verse journey 
through this book of the minor prophet Habakkuk. Not minor in importance, minor in length, because he's small in comparison to Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, the major prophets, because they're long in length. The word of the Lord. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astonished, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So so verse 1 tells us that, first of all, the prophet who writes this book is Habakkuk, or could be pronounced Habakkuk. Nobody really knows the right translation. But let me call him Habakkuk because that's what I've always called him. His name means embracing. But not a loving embrace like we do with people we care for. But more like your hands are on somebody's shoulder and you're embracing them while you also shake them. We'll come back to that and it'll make more sense in just a moment. He receives an oracle from God. There's some kind of theophanic. Aren't you impressed that I even know that word? It means God appearing in a human flesh-like form because nobody can look into the face of God and live. So God appears in the Old Testament several times in some kind of flesh-like form to talk to his servants. And here is what happens with Habakkuk. God appears face-to-face and they enter into a dialogue and he gives Habakkuk an oracle. That word oracle means burden. What God tells Habakkuk burdens his heart. It's much like I feel when God has given me a word for you. I feel burdened until I announce it to you. Habakkuk similarly felt a burden from God to announce this truth. And he's called a prophet. It could be that he's a professional prophet because most of the other prophets from Isaiah through Malachi are not actually called prophets. But this Habakkuk served in the court of the Levites wrote psalms that we'll see later on in Habakkuk that were actually sung. So it could be he was actually on the roll of the temple to prophesy in the name of the Lord. So Habakkuk sees four things in the culture surrounding him that he cries out to God and says, I don't get why you're silent. I don't get why you don't do something about these sins. And here are the four things Habakkuk points out. And let me tell you, Fasten your seatbelts because Habakkuk is relevant for today. The sins of the past are visited upon us today too. When godlessness prevails, these are the symptoms of that godlessness. Here are the four things Habakkuk saw that he complained to God about. First of all, there's violence everywhere. A couple of weeks ago, we saw in the Boston Marathon a bomb that went off that killed four and maimed over 100 others. But what's interesting is that kind of violence here is commonplace in most of the nations of the earth. Most of the nations of the earth experience regularly terrorism and car bombs. We just got in on the game. But more so, there's violence everywhere in our culture. 
Marilyn and I, my wife, are alarmed at the proliferation and titillation of violence on television and in movies. It's almost as if those who produce those movies have to take each movie to a newer level because we've become numb to the violence we've allowed to enter our minds. Go to anyone and watch it. The severity, not only of body parts being blown up, but of the torture that exists on people's bodies. And what alarms us again is most of us aren't concerned. Most of us watch it, and it doesn't bother us. Let me tell you something, folks, from my years of dealing with people. If you let something into your eyes, the psalmist said, I will not let any violence into my eyes. If you let that into your mind, it will do one of two things. It will either pummel your insides and cause you to become depressed, or you'll act out. My mama said all the time, garbage in, what? Garbage out. Did my mama know your mama? (laughs) She was so right. You can't put something into your life that doesn't manifest itself in some way or another. There's violence everywhere in our world and in our American culture. We have a culture of death in America. Deuteronomy 30, 19, that book of the law that Josiah discovered at the end of it, Moses says, choose life. In other words, develop an ethic of life in your life. Make your desire for life in your life and other people's lives your highest ethic and priority. It's a choice, but it looks to me like our culture is increasingly choosing death. Violence everywhere in Habakkuk's day too. Secondly, there's strife and party factions, Habakkuk complained. There was only partisanship and people looking out for themselves. Not a greater good for the citizens of the nation by the leaders, but the leaders desire to get their way the way they want it, no matter what. No attempt to work in a unifying way for the greater good of all of the citizens. What does that sound like? Our own political gridlock, where partisanship rules our days, sectarianism is what causes people to make decisions, and we don't have a leadership committed to the citizens first. Hmm. Thirdly, Habakkuk complained to God that there's a laxity of the moral law. What's the moral law? In the Bible, the moral law is the Ten Commandments. In fact, in verse 4, he says, so the law is paralyzed. Interestingly, that Hebrew word paralyzed means numbed, anesthetized. It's the same word when we go to the dentist. Aren't you glad the dentist anesthetizes your gums when he works on your teeth? It's to avoid further pain. The law of God, the moral law of God in Habakkuk's day had become numbed, anesthetized, paralyzed. In other words, it just had no effect on people's lives. God's moral standard for what he wants for all people everywhere no longer affected people's hearts. And I see it today. Let's run through each one of the Ten Commandments very quickly. The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. But the truth is, most people in our American culture love something more than God. He's not the highest priority of our lives. The seeking first of the kingdom of God is not what most of us yearn to do. 
Don't have any graven images. That's basically saying don't worship anything in creation more than the creator. Yet consistently we see in our culture the worship of the human body, the worship of things, the worship of materialism, the worship of possessions more than the one true holy God. Any worship of creation more than the creator is making a graven image. Then there's the Sabbath. I see so many people not take this day seriously. One day set apart when the people of God come to worship. Do you take that seriously? Uh, next week we're going to start doing the announcements before worship. You know why? Because we want an announcement-free worship time where we're not stopping and pausing to announce. We're going to do a video announcement three minutes before worship. You know what that means for you? Get here on time. Why aren't you here on time? Again, Uzzah touched the Ark of the Covenant casually in David's day and died. Many of you say, what kind of a God's that? That's a holy God who doesn't want people to approach him casually. You don't show up to work late. You don't go to movies late. Why do you come to worship late? Be here even before worship to prepare your hearts because the Sabbath is a holy day set apart. It's different than all other days. And the worship of this God is important. Yet, in America... The Sabbath is casual. It's an add-on. Maybe I'll do it, maybe not. I'd prefer to worship at Bedside Baptist, the Church of the Inner Springs. I thought that would get a better laugh than it got, but you got my point, don't you? Do you honor the Sabbath to keep it holy? Then there's honoring your mom and dad. How do we do that in our culture as the family is continually being ripped apart? You need to know as I read things in the newspaper condemning folks like me who continue to stand on what God's view of marriage is, that in the 1960s and 70s, when no-fault divorce became the rule of the land, I stood up vociferously and said, do you guys know where this is heading? When you let people out without having to work through their difficulties so easily, do you know where it's heading? And then in the 1980s and 90s, when cohabitation became the law of the land, the norm of our society, I cried out at the top of my lungs. Those of you who've listened to me through the years know I did this. And I said, do you know where this is heading? Gals, don't you realize guys will take the goodies without the commitment? Don't you know that? Do you see where this is heading? And now we're trying to redefine marriage for another whole issue. And I'm crying out again, don't you know where this is heading? When you break apart the family, there's no mom and dad to honor. But God's intention was moms and dads stay together, raise their children in that environment. It's the best for the children. And then the children honor their moms and dads. And it's the only commandment with a promise that you will stay long in the land, that Health in a society happens when the family, as God defined it, operates the way God wants it to be. And then there's adultery. One recent poll I read said that over 50% of Americans have committed adultery. <laughs> oh, okay, let's go ahead and define adultery as God defines it in the Bible. In the Hebrew, adultery is any sex outside of marriage. Pre, in, either. Whoops. Bet that includes most of us. It was rampant in Habakkuk's day. And when you throw in pornography in the mix today, this commandment is broken often. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. And then the big tenth one, God wanted to make sure everybody feels included. Because the tenth one is thou shalt not 
covet. And all of us want what our neighbors have. All of us compare ourselves to other people. And the reason God doesn't want us to covet or compare is because when we do so, we are saying to the almighty creator of the universe who made us uniquely the way we are, I don't really like the way you made me. I don't like the way you're running my life. Instead of living every day in thanksgiving for what we have in the unique person who we are. So those are Habakkuk's complaint. They are complaints. They are relative for, relevant for today. Habakkuk expresses that to God. And God's response is? Oh, I'm sorry. I missed the fourth one. The audacity of wrongdoers. That was another thing Habakkuk complained about. And Jeremiah was one of Habakkuk's contemporaries. It's interesting. They were buddies, I think. Jeremiah has a phrase in one of his verses. He says, you are a society, Israel, that's forgotten how to blush. And and we are a nation that's forgotten how to blush. Paul said it in another way. He said, you glory in your shame. What we should be ashamed about, we openly exalt. Moreover, the ultimate degradation of a society is when that society starts calling good evil and evil good. Jesus calls that the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. What that means is the Holy Spirit can't penetrate hearts and convict them of truth anymore. They've made creation and what God intended into a lie. So so those were Habakkuk's four concerns, and he lays them out to God. And you know what God's response is? He's mute. He's silent. That's why Habakkuk cried out, O Lord, verse 2, how long shall I cry for help? Evidently, in that 11-year time period with Jehoiahaz and his brother returning the nation to degradation, Habakkuk sees the moral decline. He's going, how long are you going to let this last, God? And God responds in silence. And some of you feel like God's on mute, not necessarily with the moral degradation of our society, but in your personal life. You've been fired from a job, and you're asking God why. Your marriage broke up and you're crying out to God, why? You've lost a loved one, maybe even a child, which is the worst loss of all. And you're crying out to God, why? And it's just silence. You're infertile and you can't have children. You're crying out to God, why? And there's no response. There's a chronic illness, pain besets your body. You cry out, why? And God's on mute. Silence, no answer, and that's what Habakkuk was going through. So what I'd like to do is spend the remaining moments going through three reasons that I think God is silent in our lives, why God is on mute sometimes. Here's the first one. It's so we'll value the answer more when it finally comes. Please hear this. Delay is not God's denial. Delay is not denial. Say it with me. Delay Delay is not denial. Just because God has you on mute does not mean he's denying your prayer request. It could be that what he wants to do is to prepare your heart so that when it comes, you'll appreciate it even more. The best example I can give you is is my wife, Marilyn. 
You know, for years, we were infertile. We were told by doctors we'd never have children. It would be practically impossible. And she continued to believe. She'd heard from the Lord that that was a promise he'd given her. I don't know if it's for all of you who are infertile, but he'd given it to her. And she continued to believe in that promise to the point where I've joked with you before that I asked Marilyn, well, if you're on your deathbed with the tubes all connected to your arms, what do you want me to say to you? And she said, I want you to bend your ear close to my lips because the final question I'm going to ask you is this one. Am I pregnant yet? The faith that she had. And we went through a miraculous healing that, that I don't have time to uncover for you today. It was just a miraculous healing. And we were given one and two and then the third one at a later stage of our lives I'm still trying to catch up in total exhaustion at this age and stage of life but God blessed us in immeasurable ways now now what Marilyn would say to some of you who are fertile myrtles you know where you look at your husband and you get pregnant like that with tongue-in-cheek jokingly she would say I'm sorry you haven't been through what I've been through because we waited so long and fought the fight of faith so desperately that when those babies were finally laid in our arms, we have never taken them for granted. Never. Sometimes I think God delays and puts us on mute because when the answer finally comes, we really, really appreciate that for which we've asked God for the answer. Secondly, wrestling with God is essential for spiritual maturity. Wrestling with God is essential for spiritual maturity. Remember Habakkuk's name? What does it mean? Embracing. It's not hugs. It's on the shoulders, kind of shaking each other. That's what the word really means. Habakkuk's name could be not only embracing, it could be wrestling. I just don't know of anybody who's spiritually mature who's not had to wrestle with God. You see, in Southern sensibilities, whenever anything bad happens to us, we're taught just to smile and say, praise the Lord, amen. And I want to tell you today, stop doing that. God wants a raw, real faith. The other option is we just chuck the faith, which I'll talk about in just a second. But a real spiritual maturity means you wrestle with God amidst the delay. The strain is gain. You stay on the trail or you use the trial. Put another way, when you have to be on mute and there's no answer to your prayers and you're wrestling with God, you can either give up or look up. You can either give up or look up. It's your choice. I ought to do a series on choices. Oh, I just did that, didn't I? The point's still the same. It's your choice. When the strain is in your life and you're wrestling with God and you're on mute and he's put you in delay, you can either give up or look up. And I have found that in the strain, our faith is increased. You don't think you're supposed to wrestle with God? What do you do with Jacob? Born to Isaac and Rebekah. Esau was his older brother. He came out first as a twin. Esau's name means red. He was hairy. He was the man's man, the one who loved the outdoors. He lifted weights and kept his body in great shape. Jacob, his brother, his name means shyster, trickster, 
duplicitous. Sorry for all of you named Jake out there, but that's the truth. Jacob decided he wanted Esau, the firstborn's blessing, from Isaac, his dad. Isaac, poor of sight, couldn't see well. Jacob puts on hairy skin to pretend like he's Esau, goes into Isaac's presence. Isaac asks the question, what is your name? Jacob responds, Esau, the trickster working again. And so Isaac gives Jacob, pretending to be Esau, the blessing for the firstborn. When Esau discovers this, he's one ticked off dude. And he says, I'm going to kill you, Jacob. And Jacob runs away to Uncle Laban's house where the trickster has to meet the hyper-trickster, Laban. And Laban misuses Jacob for 14 years with two wives. Finally, Jacob says, I'm going home. But to make the decision to go home, whom does he have to face? Who? Esau, the brother who wants to kill him. So the night before he is to meet him, right next to the book Jabbok, he enters a wrestling match with another theophanic vision of God, the angel of the Lord. I think it's Jesus in incarnate form. And you know what they do? They wrestle all night long. Jacob furiously refusing to surrender his right to rule his life. And at the end of the fight, the angel of the Lord actually touches the hip socket of Jacob and makes him limp. And Jacob still won't give up until finally Jacob says, I want you to bless me. Same thing you wanted from Isaac. And then the angel of the Lord asks for a second time the most important question in Jacob's life. That question is, what is your name? Earlier, his daddy had asked it. He'd said Esau duplicitously. Now he's asked again by the angel of the Lord, what is your name? And he says, my name is Trickster. I've been living life on my own terms. I've been living life according to my own trickster, shyster tendencies. And the angel releases him and says, now surrender everything to God. You have a new name. And your name is Israel. The name of God's chosen people, Israel. And do you know what the name Israel means, folks? One who wrestles with God. So if God would name his chosen people, one who wrestles with God, I think it's okay to wrestle with God. In fact, again, the people with the deepest faith, the most spiritual maturity that I know are the people who've wrestled with God, especially when he's on mute. Third, God teaches us in delays that he wants to teach us that we're not God. I have a response policy with my phone. I try to respond to any one of you who calls me or texts me or emails me within 24 hours. That's a commitment I've made. I've thought that's good leadership qualities. And for the most part, I keep it. Sometimes I get overwhelmed and can't. But for the most part, I try to have a 24-hour response policy. Guess what? God does not have a 24-hour response policy. He doesn't. Let me give you a spiritual truth. Are you ready for this hint? Are you ready? Get on the edge of your seat. Now, you ready for this? This will cost you more for coming today, okay? Come on, you ready? Here's a spiritual truth. 
God doesn't have to call us back. The eternal sovereign Lord of the universe is not obliged to call us back. Did somebody say something tacky out there? <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> I forgive you in the name of Jesus. But God, whoever did it, go get them, please. <laughs> um, the expectation that you and I deserve God to call us back immediately is nothing more than spiritual consumerism. It's nothing more than I'm the center of the universe and God owes me a call back. And folks, God delays sometimes to stop that foolishness from entering our heads. God is not obliged to call us back. Sometimes trying to explain what God is doing when we're on mute is like when a five-year-old comes to us as a mom or dad and says, I want some sugar. Give me some candy. And you say, like, yeah. Well, let me explain to you the nutritional value of sugar. You see, if you ingest sugar into your system, all the other organs will overwork. You'll hyperventilate. It'll cause all the other organs not to work rightly, and you'll not be healthy, and it'll ultimately affect your life spiritually, healthily, emotionally, all the rest of your life. You just shouldn't eat sugar right now. We do that, right? Are you kidding me? What do we usually say to the kid? No. No. And then sometimes we don't even say no. We just go... And we hate it when our parents do that as five-year-olds, and we hate it when God does that to us as spiritual five-year-olds. God does not owe us an explanation for what he's doing. And if he wants to put us on delay, that's God's sovereign right to do so and not be obliged to explain why he's doing what he's doing. He puts us in the waiting room of faith sometimes to teach us that God's God and we're not God and most of our problems come when we get those two things confused. Bottom line, what allowed Habakkuk to get through this time of delay was his relationship of trust with God. You see, here are the, here's, are the two options that you can do when you're put on mute, when you're put in delay, when you're in the waiting room of faith. The first response is, again, praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen, stuff it down. It doesn't do you any good. It is an inauthentic faith. The second option is to be like a lot of people in the culture. If your God is good, how come there's suffering in the world? Folks, that's next week's message. That's the second question Habakkuk asks God. And we'll look at his answer in verses 5 through chapter 2-1. But most people in our culture, when they see supposedly a good God allowing bad things to happen, they just chuck faith altogether. When delay occurs in their lives, they go, God's not good, and they just leave. But the third option is the one that God wants us to have. He wants us to wrestle with him, to struggle with him, to have a raw, real, authentic faith. And that's what Habakkuk had. And that's why he finally found answers and his faith grew, as we'll see. That's where I want you to be. But that kind of relationship only comes through Jesus Christ. The way to have that kind of relationship with God is only through Jesus. It is by admitting you're a sinner 
asking Jesus to come into your heart. And you then become not an enemy of God, but a friend of God. And in that relationship, God still causes delays, sometimes denials. But we do trust him that delay isn't necessarily denial. And we trust him that his ultimate answer is good because he's good. Please, over the next weeks, strive with me for that kind of faith. For that's where God wants us all to be.